Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the 1871 podcast. Our second in as many days or if you count the quiz on Sunday, it's actually three days in a row. So just a reminder that if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, you can now also watch all of our series two episodes on YouTube. And if you'd like to do that, you can go to YouTube and search for 1871 podcast. And obviously, if you're already watching on YouTube, you knew that already. Um, The audio version will always be available first, but we'll usually add the video version on our YouTube channel as soon as we can. Now, I mentioned Sunday, the quiz. I can now announce the winner of our 1871 quiz. And that was Chris Bennett. And he got an impressive 39.5 points out of 50. Um, and we deducted him half a point because he didn't he couldn't remember someone's first name. But anyway, very impressive and well done to Chris. And if you want to have a go at our Reading FC quiz, you can find the episode wherever you get your podcasts. And it's also... Um, available on our YouTube channel. So before we speak to tonight's special guest, just to mention that on last night's episode with Tim Kilpatrick, you might have heard Dylan Kerr start randomly counting to five when Tim was answering a question. So Dylan, you had some issues with with power, didn't you, on the previous episode? Um, But we've got you back on this episode and um, you've got your big game tonight, uh, Marumo Gallants against Cape Town City. So, How's uh, how's the team shaping up for that? Yeah, we just had a team meeting just now, and uh, you know we played a CAF uh, Confederations Cup game, which is like the Europa League Cup, um, and we went through a bit of video analysis, and you know the stuff that we the, the way we were playing, uh, the one touch, two touch football, pass the movement when when I showed oh, them good. the video highlights. Yeah, we're like they were That's what we've got to do tomorrow. Keep that momentum and keep playing. Yeah, all right. Well, Dylan, we're struggling a, a little bit with the connection. I think with, with you, with what's happening with the power there. So we'll we'll keep we'll keep going and uh, 
and see what we can do. But um, yeah, wish wish you luck in your match tonight if we lose you again. So that's Marumo Gallants against uh, Cape Town City in a, a league game in the South African Premier Division. And uh, good good luck to Dylan. So I'd like to uh, introduce our special guest for tonight. Now we've had many legends on um, the podcast in Series 1 and Series 2 on the 1871 podcast. Obviously, we've got Dylan Kermer-Lord as a co-host and uh, Johnny Hunt, a bit of a Reading legend as a fan as well. Um, and I would actually class our guest tonight as a Reading legend. Uh, he was certainly at Reading at um, a time that was very successful for the club with um, Sir John Medeski and the 106 season and all of that. So I'd like to introduce another Reading FC legend. It's the former physio, John Fern. John Fern, welcome to the 1871 podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And just uh, thanks very much. Honoured, completely humbled by being called a legend. I think no one's ever called me that before. But uh, but no, it's a, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you on, John. And uh, we'll see how it goes with, with Dylan. Hopefully his connection will will stay. It's uh, to do with the, the power and how he connects over there and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, great to great to have Dylan Kerr. Uh, the legend with with us so let's see how that goes um john i just wanted to take you back to your your time at, at reading you, you had quite a few years there really successful um time for reading and also when we were speaking before um the episode started i think you described that as the happiest time of your life or something like that so is that the case you know what was that like in terms of not just your career but uh, as, as a highlight of your life if you like yeah it, I do I really do honestly uh, look back so so fondly in my time my nine years at Reading um you know joining at a time when Reading was sort of in a subtle transition with Pards and Martin Allen as the management um and I was at West Ham at the time <laughs> been at West Ham for like years and a mad dog turned up at a reserve game when I was over in Kingstonian doing a reserve game for West Ham and I thought that bloke looks familiar because, um, you know, I was a West Ham fan as a kid. And so, and he came over and in his nice gruff voice, basically dragged me out for a pint. And it was sort of history from then on, really. Um, and I just look at it as a really fun time. It was great seeing a club develop from, you know, League One then, the first year I was there and getting promoted at Brentford, uh, which is ironic because I've spent the day at Brentford today, actually, which is looking at how that club's developed as well. Um and uh, and then going through such a wonderful period, really, with with Pards and Steve as management and Brendan a little bit, and then finishing with Brian, it was just such a such a magical period. And then I you know I went on to spend thirteen years at Chelsea, which was 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 great for different reasons, really. But I say my heart really was and always will be at Reading, really, because it was such a wonderful time. Uh, and uh, I've got to bring Jolly and Dylan in in a second, but I just want to ask you, obviously. You know, if you think about um, Reading legends, you, you think about um, Steve Koppel, you'd class Sir John Medeski in those terms as, as well, of course, and, and obviously the, the players, um, you know, through that time. But you were the guy that was, was keeping everyone fit. So you contributed to that. Um, it, was it kind of as simple as that, in essence, was your role to make sure that that Reading had, you know, players who were fit, avoided injury, all that sort of thing. And and, you know, you you 
I think a lot of people will remember you from your time at, at Reading. How much did you feel a part of all of that success, John? Yeah, I, I think I did feel massively part of it. It was a it was a club now that I look back at how we were structured in terms of the the, the staffing, just as much as the facilities that we had. You know, when I joined it, we were at Sonning Hockey and Cricket Club. I didn't even have a medical room. I had a bed in the changing room. And Martin used to sometimes do a gym session by closing all the windows and sticking the eating on and everybody's sweating their what's-its off. We eventually got some funding for a little tiny portal cabin outside and that was our medical room and players used to come in there and use the heater to warm up before training. And it was it was so simple times, but, you know, going to David Lloyd because we had no gym. We used to go to David Lloyd in Sonning to use the pool or the gym facility and most of the players like the Phil Whiteheads and the AD Vivashes, I'd get them to the gym and they'd want me to buy them a cake and a coffee to persuade them to do anything. So <laughs> it was, it was, you know, I look now and how things, even Reading, how it's moved on. It was simple times, but as I said before, it was it was great to be part of it. And, uh, you know, I had direct communication with Nigel as chief exec. Um, and, you know, I even look back at the staff. I had a uh, Jeff Williams, who was the part-time doc, popping in once or twice a week. You know, my academy, academy physio when I first went there was was Glenn Driscoll, who's now sort of performance director at Leicester, who went went to Chelsea and then followed Brendan in his travels of management. Um, and it, you know, it was simple as me and Glenn doing the medical from the academy in the first team. I had Ricky Lowe doing a bit of massage on the side, who he was a character in himself. And it was just, it was, a, and we just did our best. You know, we did what we could to keep players on the field. And and Steve was wonderful at helping us develop the, the team as well as Nigel and the chairman to develop what we could as in terms of a department. But um, I, I think I look back on it fondly because you really were a jack of all trades when it came to the type of care. Sometimes I was doing a bit of property. Sometimes I was a glorified GP. One minute I was driving up with sort of Blakey, Glenn Little, all the way to Leicester to see a consultant. And sometimes I wonder how I did it because you were over the place. Um, but I just look back on it in a wonderful way. It was a really, really great time. Yeah. And and anyone who's ever sort of worked with Martin Allen has always got a funny story about him. So, John, what what's your funny story about Martin Allen? Because the, there are loads of them. I'm sure you've got one as well. So many. Well, my, I think my first initial thought was how Martin was, is that so much of his attitude was bravado, really. And he'd it, it, scream and shout and sometimes really show you up in front of everybody and players because that's his demeanour. And then he'd spend the evening on the phone to me apologising for, for the way he was that day and said, oh, don't take it personally. I'm only doing it for this effect or that effect. But he had a heart of gold and still, and he, and he, was, he was wonderful to work with, even though he was... You know, some of his methods were really just typically old school, really. And uh, I think the balance with him and Pards and and and, and the likes of Kevin Dillon and Brian and uh, Nicky, uh, Nicky Ammond, it was a really lovely mixture um, of, of, of different skills and different personalities and characters. And it was that mix that I think made it so successful, really. And especially the great the year we got promoted. You know, we didn't have anybody, like even from a player's perspective, we didn't have great players. We just had a group of players that gelled and connected really, really well. Yeah. And have you got a particular story about Martin that you you, you can tell us? 
Um, we can come back to that if you if you like. Um, we can come back to it. Maybe I'll have a think yeah. about it. The thing All is, right. the, the thing is, I find that that period of time was was always volatile because we used to train at Sonning and then we went to Bradfield for a bit. We never really had a home, and Martin was just really sly on how he got me to go there in the first place because when he said, "Oh, you know, I want you to come," and I met everybody, they always took me to the stadium. And I was stupid enough never to say, can we go to the training ground where we spend all our time? So I was going around and I said, you know, just let's say I was only a couple of years old at that point. And I was going, this is great. This is lovely. And I was thinking subliminally, I was thinking training ground must be awesome. Not to mention we didn't really have one. <laughs> and uh, if I know now, I wonder whether, you know, my idea of nutrition was the sonning calf, really. That was the idea of what we were having on a day-to-day basis. But, um, you know, and then Martin was just off the cuff. And I say the probably best, the thing of the first thing always was the gym sessions he did. And uh, it was just so old school. And, you know, it was it was close to putting, sometimes I wondered if you put dustbin bags on everybody just to sweat it out type. That was that sort of mentality, really. But, yeah. uh, you know, you can't say sometimes it wasn't successful because the first year I was there, we got promoted, which was amazing. Yeah. Uh, Dylan, I want to bring you in now. Um, obviously, John, started at Reading you know a few years after you left but um you, you were kind of just before John in terms of that transition to then when Martin Allen came in when Alan Pardew came in and then you know obviously everything that came next what what do you want to ask John Dylan no it's, it's just interesting you know when you when you listen to people and and, and show it's the people that add value to to the situation you know training facilities non-training facilities, moving here, didn't, didn't have a gym, had to travel to do his chiropody, um, had to do, you know, it, you know, it was a it, it sounds like he was a can-do person. And that's what we had. That's what we had, uh, you know, with, with my three years at Reading, you know, we, 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 we had people that could do, you know, they, there was no expectations and, and, and everybody, everybody mucked in. I mean, there's a, there's a famous story, John, when uh, we ran our own bar, at the bottom of Elm Park and in the players' lounge. I mean, you couldn't swing a cat in it, but we'd have 50 people in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, one weekend, Jeff Hopkins and Mickey Goodin were both suspended. So off they went on the ferry from Dover to Calais and then went to went and stopped up, stopped up the van of wine and Foster's Lager, because that was the, everybody's choice back in them days. Um and um, they would go there for the day, come back uh, the following, you know, the following morning, not slept, and then stock up the bar. And it was like last one leaves, cleans up, and locks the doors. And 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 that's what that's that's the sacrifice we all made. And and I think, you know, every players now have got it so comfortable and so they're so pampered and looked after. Yes, we were looked after. We 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 were. I wouldn't say we were pampered. But you know what? What players have got now at, at, at professional football clubs in in the Premier League as well, uh, more than in the Championship, but even Championship clubs, maybe some First Division clubs. You know they've got everything. They've got masseurs. They've got they've got tropodists. They've got feet specialists. They've got eye specialists. They've got you know everything. You know that, that a football player needs, and they still complain. They'll still moan. So yeah, it's it's fascinating listening to you and. You know, I love it. I love it. You know, we, we've been told not to call him Mad Dog, but you called him. So, Martin, we never mentioned it. Not us, not me. Oh, I didn't realise that. So, he'll be after me now. Bloody yeah, you're in, you'll, be, you're in, you'll be in trouble from him now. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be to be fair, John. Oh, but do you miss it? 
Go on. Do you miss it? Did you, do you, what? 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 You know? What, what? What? What would you have done better? What would you have changed in that time? I don't know if I'd change anything because I think at the time you do what you can do at the time and you do your best what you think's right at the moment, really. And you can only do with what you have in front of you. I think, you know, what probably what would be more frustrating is doing it, going back to it now after I've my experience at a club like Chelsea for 13 years and then going back to it. But then again, this part of me thinks it would be nice to go back to basics. It would be nice to go back to it in a way. Um, but uh, I think I, I, I just miss... Partly, when, especially when the, the bigger clubs and that connection, you know, having the connection with. I went to I went to the game, the Watford game, and I was. It was the first time in all the time I've been. I still live in the area, and first time I've been in the directors' lounge, and it was the first time I've been in the directors' lounge since I've been in, since I've been in football and talking to the chairman and Nigel was still there and and even there was a Carlo Cuccini who I know from Chelsea was there, and uh, and um, it was it was just that connection with those people at Chelsea, you wouldn't even dream of talking closely really to the upstairs and the powers that be. It was, there was a real disconnect. And I met the the Abramovich when he was owner a couple of times, but it was really just like a shaking your hand and you walk through. It wasn't the connection that you had with, with, with uh, John Madejski or with Nigel. And, and it's that connection of people and that connection, which was so really precious that you only really appreciate and you don't always realise at the time. You only really appreciate it later on. But it doesn't. It doesn't seem. It oh, doesn't seem to be sorry. that there at the moment. I mean, you're reading the tweets and the and, and and all the Instagrams and Facebook, all social media. You know, the 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 finger the finger is always pointed at the, the director and the chairman and the owner and the the agent. But it doesn't seem that there's that there's, there's that togetherness, there's that closeness, there's that. You know that that what you're describing. You know that, that that everybody's you know mucking in and doing the best for that football club. You know, and that's only what I'm reading. You know, for, for, on my on my Twitter account was, you know, there, there's some royal fans there who are very very vicious. There's some royal fans there who sit on the fence, uh, but it seems that you know they're football fans. They're the, they're the livelihood of the football club, and and they've got a right to complain and they've got a right to moan. But they, I don't think they, they understand the dynamics in the club. That's what was happening, and that's why, you know, this this platform is very, very good for that because we're talking new, past, former, present. You know, we've got all that mixture of uh, people like self come onto the show and, and and tell it as it is, as it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that is that real disconnect. You look at now where you've got, you know, rather than my role being sort of, you know, whatever physio, head physio, head of medical service, whatever you want to call it, and then I directly direct link with my line manager was the chief executive these days you've got you've got maybe a technical director then you've got a director of performance then you might have a head in medical and then you might have the head physio so you've got sort of three or four people before you have that connection to board level and so it's so much more complicated now and someone's agenda and someone's ego gets in the way and I'm not having him talking to somebody because I should be doing this and and that's not his role. And it becomes so convoluted and so com- complicated. And especially with, you know, I, I'm not involved with the, the intricacies of what Reading's going through. But when they've got a, a relatively distant uh, owner who's not always as present as, say, compared to the John Madejskis of the world, that creates a different uh, a different um, um, sort of environment am- amongst everybody in terms of communication and who's doing what. 
And it's very difficult, really difficult for people to know what their identity in a club and what their roles are in that communication. Johnny, I'll bring you in now. Go on. Yeah, it's cut two things, John. First of all, like you worked under you know, four very different managers, but very successful in their own way at Reading. Obviously, Brendan, when he left Reading, what what did they expect from you? Were there very different kind of things from each manager, from Brian to Steve, or were they, was it pretty a similar role because you were there for such you know things move on in ten years? And also, secondly, when you were, you dealt with a lot of players that are injured. How are you there for their mental health as well when they're struggling? How big a role do you play to keep them going if they're out of the game for a year or? Yeah, um, I th- you know, just on that one, I think your your role as a physio, especially with the uh, you do get a, you're probably the only member of staff uh, or the unique member of staff that spends the most time with a player. Um, so you you spend more time with the coach than the coaches do. You spend more time. Um, in terms of one-to-one when they're injured than, than probably some of their colleagues were in terms of the field. And you're part psychologist anyway when you're managing them and some of the sort of big challenging injuries that we had at, at, at Reading, um, you know, you do develop a very close close uh, link. And sometimes you're living that injury just as much as they are. Yeah. You know, they're looking at you for guidance. They're looking at you for directing that process. Um and sometimes it's a challenge. You know, you, you can't be great at everything. You can't know everything there is to know about all injuries there is out there. Um, and so you're going through that in sometimes learning process, the best way to manage this. And sometimes I hate to say it, but medicine is a little bit of trial and error sometimes. Yeah. Now you go to your GP and you've got brain pain and you sort of think, well, is this cancer or have I just got headache? But the doctor goes through a trial and error process to come to a diagnosis. I'm a nurse myself, so I do the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so you're going through sometimes with the challenging stuff yourself. And the thing is now, back then, you know, there was, when I left Reading, we had a good, we had uh, Luke Anthony was there, Dan Buchanan, you know, who went on to have a successful period with Brian. Um, and you had a good number of staff that you could have as your support network when you're on your own and doing it yourself. It's it's even more challenging. You haven't got someone to bounce ideas off of and that sort of thing, and that's really really difficult. Um, but um, and I would I'd be I'd be lying if I didn't have sleepless nights just as much as that. And I think all you can be is empathic with the player as much as possible, and you you engage with them and explain. You know, you understand this, but you know we're doing everything we can. And what I always felt, and this was probably coming from the Premiership team West Ham at the time, is that I was aware of what a good quality medical team was um, was able to deliver. And um, I tried to, even if we were in League One, I tried to deliver what I felt was a really good service yeah. as best we could. So if there was the top guy for knees, we still went to see him, even if we were in League One or the Championship. So it's still giving them the opportunity, whether you're Man U, Man City, or whether you're at Reading, to yeah. give them that, that opportunity to, to get the best care they possibly could. And and John, um, you mentioned you had some uh, challenges that were bigger than others. So talk about some of the specific players, because obviously, you know, going back to that one hundred six season and then doing so well in the first season in, in the in the Premier League, it is about um, prevention and then you know getting those players back as quickly as as possible as well. So can you pick out a couple of examples of 
you know the the players that were really important to Reading, the key players that that you worked with and and how you helped them. Yeah, I think I think in terms of um, uh, some of the injured players um, during the time there, there was there was players that um, that I remember that were a real challenge from an injury point of view, and that were big players for us. People like Kitts, Dave Kitson, who you know I remember I think it was Middlesbrough we played, and he got taken out right in the middle of the pitch, and they wiped out his knee. And I, to be honest, I've still got the video somewhere, and I still use it for for for, for lectures because. Harry didn't do his ACL, I can't believe, because he completely got wiped out. And and his his injury was quite challenging. Um, that we that we had to look at some innovative ways to sort of manage that and it because it didn't heal as well as we expected to do. And then the other one that was that still haunts me to the day I die was Blakey's uh, Glenn Little's Achilles. Um that he had what was known as a longitudinal tear through the Achilles. So the tear wasn't sort of a cross his tear was within the tendon. So it was split and it, it took us a long time to realize that. And it was only until we went to surgery that we realized what we were dealing with. Um, and that was, that was a real challenge. Um, but as I said before, you're, you're working with it together um, to get through that process. Mm. Um, but the, um, I think um, um, the, the other types of issues that, you know, I even look back at the irony of it all with, uh, the game against Chelsea where Petr Cech got their head injury and um, and, then, and then Carlo Cudicini for them got injured and they ended up putting JT in goal. Um, and even that process, how the, 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 the fallout from that from a club, you know, Chelsea were really using a lot of blame on that time to, to blame our facility, why, what was going on. And, and then Hunty, you know, dealt with it in his way and got a little bit of a bad press when I still believe that there was no intention at all on Hunty's behalf of what he what he was. And it, there was a lot of bad press going through that process. Um, but um, but uh, and then, then there was injuries like Kevin Doyle. Now, we had a strike force like Kitts, Kevin Doyle, Leeds, um, you know, and you know, some great, some good strikers. And it was funny that we ever we always seemed to get one one injured at a time. It was really quite strange because I remember even Kevin Doyle ripped his hamstring to shreds, and um, and it took us took us it did take a while to recover. Um, but it was as if the, everything was aligned. You know, if you're going to get injuries, but one came in and one came out, and one came in and one came out, and so much, especially that year we went up, it was as if luck was on our side and. Uh, and the the god the the gods aligned us perfectly. That one, I think I don't know if it's true, but someone said to me that we only used sixteen players that year, um, and and that is just un, you know uncanny. I can't believe it if it's true. Well, uh, John, we you mentioned Stephen Hunt, and uh, we are very hopeful that he's coming on as a guest very shortly. So we'll ask him. Obviously, you know that that was a major incident, and then uh, another one. I don't know if he was still. Uh, was Chris Casper still sort of technically at the club when you joined, or had he left by Only then? Casper a bit, yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Because yeah. how Johnny mentioned mental health, and and obviously he, um, you mentioned Dave Kitson, um, but with Chris Casper, that injury ended his career. Yeah. So how how do you help a, a player like that? Did you actually work with with Chris at all to to help him? My memory is not very long, really. Um, I don't I don't remember spending a lot of time with him. It must have been literally maybe a few months or the transition, because my memory, excuse me, because it doesn't go back quite far, that far. 
but um because 20 years ago now um but see it's um i don't remember spending more uh, that, that close amount of time but we had a few players that struggled i remember um um center half steve um pardon um center half played center half um God, and he and he had to retire with a knee issue. A.D. Whitbread had a nasty knee issue. Even Paul Mortimer was having lots of calf issues, and we got him for a while. Um, now we had a lot of players that come through that struggling period. The funny thing is, you know, I look back at what Kitts has talked about regarding his mental health, and you know, I remember him talking about when he went to South Korea. So the year we went up and we went to South Korea on tour, and how he struggled with his mental health during that period. And it was funny because back then it really wasn't, I was not aware of it. I just wasn't aware that I had a good, I always felt I have a good relationship and I've met up with kids just, just a few weeks ago and we still text each other regularly. Um, but back then it just wasn't talked about. It's just such a different time now than it was before. Um, and yet now those same conversations are so much more open and so much more freer to to feel open that you're not being judged and um, um and labeled in a way that back then would have been really real a real stigma against that discussion and open up like that and, and dylan want to bring you back in now obviously you know as as a player former reading player um throughout your playing career you, you must have had kind of injuries niggles all that sort of thing how how what was your relationship like with with um the the physio at, at at Reading in terms of how the physio helped you if, if you got injured or you had niggles or, or whatever? Well, um, oof, you know, it's tough. I mean, because, uh, you know, my my career after I did my hamstring at Reading, um, you know, I've had five groin up, op- I've had five uh, hernia operations, I've had three groin releases, I've had a ruptured hamstring and a, and a cleaned Achilles. So, and... You know, yeah. when I ruptured my when I ruptured my hamstring, I think it was the first complete rupture that a footballer had, had had in, in English football. And uh, Graham Holloway was a surgeon in Swindon, and thank God, you know, he, he literally saved my leg. You know, the the doctor at the time, I can't remember his name. Um, he said, "Oh, it's just a, it's just a tear. You know, it's just bleeding of the muscle." The next day, I was rushed down to Swindon. To see Graham Holloway, and he, he booked me into Princess Grace Hospital that day. He said, have, "Have you eaten?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, don't eat. You know, we have to have surgery." So he reattached. He'd never done a he'd never done a complete rupture before, but luckily he'd read an article on some American football player uh, that had ruptured his uh, hamstring, and he copied that procedure and, and touch wood. Eighteen months later, you know, it, it, you know, people had told me, you know, it was very unlikely John that I'd, I'd return to football, but through a lot of hard work and and uh, sacrifice, you know, not to not to give up, I ended up getting back to football, um, and quite famously on TV on on Sky and on BBC Scotland, told Mickey Gooding and Jimmy Quinn exactly what I felt about them for for releasing it live on TV. You know, um, so, uh, you know, emotions and that. Uh, but then, obviously, you know, I, I didn't, I did, I had one earlier at Reading, I had two at Leeds, and I had two at Kilmarnock. So, you know, I, I had lots of earlier operations. And, and 
and which culminated in me that uh, my groins, you know, being you know kind of separated three times, twice on the left, and but my physios are, and 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 I think you've I think you've got to have that relationship. Paul Turner was was a good physio for me, although he did set me back about four weeks because he told me to do these jumps. Uh, after about a month of rehab and my knee totally bottled. But the, the, the worst thing was that when I was at Kilmarnock and Alistair McPhee uh, was, was a physio, a normal physio, and I'd just come out of hospital and I had this niggly injury with my groin and I just couldn't get the pain. You know, it was like somebody was sticking a red hot needle right in my groin all the time. Couldn't walk. Basically, I was in agony. And he told me to go on the bench and he was going to test my muscle strength. So had, I had my feet together and my legs apart and I thought he was just going to put his fingers on my knees and I had to close my knees. He put but he put all his body weight, now it's about 20 stone, he put all his body weight on me and my both groins snapped. I actually hear that, I actually heard the snap and he fucking started laughing. Sorry, I'm getting angry now. He actually started laughing. I'm on the floor in tears. And, and and I was rushed to hospital and I, I had to have him reattached and that, that was my professional career over at 31. So I think, Mark, what, you know, from, from a relationship, you've got to have a special bond with that person that you can trust, that you can listen to and say, listen, this is where I am. And what I didn't like about Alistair was, oh, go, just go to the gym, you know, just go through the pain. You know, and I used to go to the gym, lie on the sunbed for an hour, because I couldn't train. I was in absolute agony. And I think that's a relationship that makes you stronger, gets you healthier quicker, gets you fitter quicker. And that you can trust him when you go and ask him a question or when he asks you a question and you say, look, I'm not ready. I'm struggling to do A, B, C. Then he takes that on board. And that's the biggest thing for 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 video to have the for, for a player is to have the physio's trust and, and well, we're losing we're losing you now a bit Dylan but but John come coming back to you now um talk to us about the 106 season obviously first game memorably that season w- was a defeat what was what was the sense you being part of the club and working with the players in in pre-season what was the, the, the sense of what might be about to, to come? Obviously, everyone hopeful that, you know, you can have a promotion push, but nobody would have expected that sort of thing to, to, to happen. But what was the mood like in, in pre-season and, and what was that like to be part of? Yeah, I think the pre- well, you mean in pre-season, the actual yeah. year we went up. That's well, it. the pre-season was just like any other pre-season, really. Um, and I'm trying to remember back. We, I, th- I think we went to Borlanger like we always did with Steve. You know, we we were getting you know it's quite a regular thing really. We even the nightclub owners knew where, who we were. Um, but um, Steve liked his routines. He liked his pre seasons, the way it worked. And um, and I think the funny thing is, is that it was just a for us that started just like any other season. You know, it was it was just doing the the things that we believed in and doing this the same processes, the best practice that we always felt was the right thing to do. And it was, it was literally everything just seemed to line up. And I don't think it really occurred to us until probably Christmas time, what potentially was happening. Um, And 
I, I remember talking to a few players and how every game it became it became just a um a feeling that every game you were going to thinking yeah we're going to win today yeah we're going to win today yeah we're going to get a result today we're going to get we're going to get points out of this it was just that feeling of euphoria um and it was funny because i you, you got the same sense of the 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 you know the taste in the changing room and the the feeling around the squad that that i did when i was at chelsea where sometimes you just went to games you think you're thinking you're getting on the bus you're on the way to the game thinking yeah, every, every, the buzz is great. You know, you're going to win. You know, and it's just something in it. And I'd, I'm a strong believer of gut feeling, and how your your brain takes information from so many different places. Um, you know, we're all into data and computers and everything else, but some things you just can't measure. Some things you you're just your brain is the best computer you've got, and you just taste the information that it's delivering you all over the day and the week and the month or whatever. And there was just a flavour that something special was happening, and uh, and for us to get promoted so quickly, um, and then uh, <laughs> and then having a couple of trips were which were fantastic, um, and uh, and then even coming back from those trips and us still thrashing the pants off teams, it was it was just a, a ride in a real wave. It was just like getting on a surfboard and you were what riding the wave, and it just wasn't ending. It was brilliant. And then you took that on to the first season in, in the Premier League, which, which yeah. I think, you know, ev- everyone talks about, you know, winning winning the the title, the one hundred and six season. But but then the following season, finishing eighth in the the Premier League, and you know, some really famous wins in that season as, as well, was was amazing. In in some respects, for different reasons, was better than the the, the previous season, and that's a lot to do with momentum and. Was that was that the sense in in that summer before you know when obviously that euphoria of going up, uh, getting the one hundred and six points, breaking the record, Graham Murty scoring that goal, um, that that just continued the same going back to the nineties when when Dylan was there and uh, and Reading almost went from what's now League One all the way straight to the the, the Premier League. It, it, was that what you're talking about? That just sort of carried on into that first season in the Premier League. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we had it really, we, we didn't change the squad much. You know, we, we added a few, but the squad was pretty consistent. And I really believe it was, it's the winning mentality. And it's funny, as I say, I was having that same conversation with Brentford today and they've done, done a similar thing. You know, it's really not too dissimilar. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're riding the crest of the wave and doing fantastically well. And we missed, I think we missed Europe by a point or something, didn't we? Yeah. Or something ridiculous. Right, yeah. Um, and and, and you know, we can look at back at that year after and whether that's when you really needed to make the change. That's when we really should have seen what was potentially coming next. Um, and even bouncing back the year after and Steve deciding to leave. And, you know, I think he's even said that, you know, maybe that wasn't the best one of his best decisions in the future um, mm. back then. But um, but yeah, you're right. It was that it literally was that winning mentality and how it became it became just so built into what you were doing. Um, yeah, I've got to I've got to throw it back to to Johnny and Dylan in a second but um you you mentioned that so that's kind of feels relevant to what's happening now. Do you, do you think it's the same now but the other way around like we you know now we're we've lost three games in a row, no goals scored. Do you then go in to the next game kind of with the opposite feeling almost do you think? Yeah. I, I, 
I think you do. I think you do. It's always there because you're putting yourself under more pressure to win the next one, and the next one. And especially when you look at the championship now where you think, you know, what, six six points away from a dogfight, really. And the way the games come thick and fast, you're six points on, you're thinking you're knocking on the playoffs, six points off, you're knocking on a on a relegation fight. And it's 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 a horrendous league from that side of things, really. Um, you know, you, the irony is even the Premier League's not far off that at the moment as well. Um, and then that's what makes it a great league to get out of, just as much as a great league to play in and to watch and to be a fan of. But also, it, it, you know, it's incredibly stressful when you're really linked with a particular club that's on that, you know, that harder end of the scale, really. But um, and this is where the, the pressure is hard, you know, the pressure for the management to to turn things around quickly and to you know, uses people around him to try and make a change and to break in. And especially even things like the points deduction and the AFL stuff hanging over you, it just can't help. It just can't help that that longevity of where things are going in the future and what's going to happen. It's all unsettling. Johnny, bring you back in now. Yeah, I mean, you're saying like, you know, when, when a team's successful, as a physio, do you get less players coming into the... Their injuries, you know, they, they go, oh, I'll be all right this week and I'll, I'll run it off. Or do you, when, when the team's not going so well, I'll, oh, yeah, not so good this week. <laughs> um, well, funny enough, I wasn't at Chelsea when they were probably in their worst they were for the last 15 years because I'd left by then. But um, <laughs> I can imagine it got very busy because I think at one point they had something like 11 injuries in there. But um, um, yeah, I, I think to some extent, I think everything hurts a little bit more when things aren't doing well. and everybody wants to play when things are going really well and want to be part of it. So there is a little bit of that, but I think players, I think players get a bad rap sometimes, you know, players don't want to be injured for God's sake. You know, you know, I've had players, I've had managers that make me stay with players until five, six o'clock because they want to be inconvenienced because he reckons that they're making it up. Players don't want to be injured. They, seriously, they, I, I want, players want to be out there playing football and doing what they love. They don't want to be stuck with, some snotty nose physio, they what they want to play. You know, it's simple as that. And it's my job to get them out on that pitch as quickly and as safely as possible. Um, so that that's the most that's the most important thing. And I'm there, I'm there to help the process and to facilitate that player back out there as quick as I can. So And how how quick does the how's the process changed on from twenty well, twenty two years ago when you started with us to where, you know, at Chelsea the whole, you know, the medical, the technology for you as a, as a physio. Yeah. Is it, e- is it too easier now? Or is it you, you lose your own personal instinct kind of part of that now? I, I think it's harder now because you've got so many influencing factors. Firstly, you've got influencing factors to the player. You know, a lot of players now have their own gurus outside the club and you're fighting with, they're having someone saying this in one ear and they've got someone saying something else in another ear. They've got maybe their own physio. They've got more their own SNC coach or fit personal trainer, as well as having all the staff who've got opinions. You might have a department that somebody's pushing one agenda and somebody else yeah. is coming from a different angle. You know, I, I do look back and it was simple. It was so much simpler <laughs> back then. And that maybe that's why I look at it in a in a maybe a romantic way, because it was simple way. Yeah. You know, it was very simple. And, um, and the money, the money was <laughs> was obviously nowhere near but I look at you know the data and look at computing and look at analysis and it makes everything so complicated and I worry that we overcomplicate it and overthink it too much 
rather than really looking at what is the essence of what we're dealing with. We're still looking at... Now, I was having a long chat today about um, hamstring injuries, and there's a paper that came out recently, and they did a 20-year review of hamstring injuries. And hamstring injuries have actually doubled in the in the Premier League in the last 20 years. So Thank we've you. got more information and more data and more, well, we know... John, John, we're going to... Sorry to interrupt. We're going to bring oh. Dylan in now because he forgot to switch his mute on. Dylan, go on, bring you back oh, in. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I mean, um, John, listen, you know, you come, come to Africa, come to Africa and see what they do for a physio. We haven't got a physio. We haven't got a physio. Uh, the clubs that I've been at, I've been at five clubs. They haven't got physios. They've got people that are family members that can that they call themselves masseurs or gomers, right? So basically, if you've got an injury, they'll take you to some witch doctor and they'll they'll cut you. So if you've got a, a hamstring injury, you know they, they, they can't. They'll not take you for most of the clubs. Don't take you for a scan or an X-ray or anything like that. They'll just put a blade onto you until you bleed. Uh, and, it, and it's frightening. It's frightening because that, that's the called Sangomas. That's that's what they believe in, you know. And we've got we've got two physio, two so-called physios. They're not physios. They're just the chairman's friend and uh, the general manager's probably girlfriend. You know, it, it, it's really really weird because you know we, we've got a player that got a, a groin strain on Saturday, and he's had to pay his own money to go to. A, a club doctor that I know, uh, uh, um, an Afrikaans guy, who's very, very good, and he's done a he's done an ultrasound scan on him, and said he's got a, a, a strain, you know, and it's told him what to do. If we didn't do that, you know, that, then he'd, he'd just be, you know, just let, let's take him into the hills and let's get him cut open. That's what they believe in. It's, it's, it's really, really weird. But, but you mentioned that belief, and I do really, and because I don't think sometimes that that hasn't changed. You know, I've got, I've got players that might disappear and they go off and see somebody that they believe in. You know, you've you yeah. probably heard of the Wolfarts, the German doctor who's injecting things like calf's blood and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that, that sort of thing still happens. And yeah. it's amazing that power of belief. You know, we've got, we've got the thing in the medical world called the placebo effect. You know, I never underestimate the power of the placebo effect. It's incredibly powerful and it's more important than sometimes what you're being done. And it's coming back to the same thing that Dylan mentioned in terms of trust. If you've got the trust of a player, I could tell a player to stick his head in the oven for five minutes and that will be the best treatment he has. If he believes that, believes in that, then, then, and it's going to make him better, the chances are it's going to make him better. If you believe in Who was the most likely to do that? Was it Glenn Little or someone else? Well, stick his head in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'd like to stick head in, head in the oven. I know that. <laughs> well, remember back in back in the day when you had a groin strain, they found you straight off to Gilmore, down in London, you know, in Harley Street, and he he'd shove his two fingers, you know, which is you know the most painful experience I've ever had. I and I didn't do it once; I did it twice. Um, you you went down there because all of a sudden your groin strain would be cured within six weeks. Exactly. You that's know, right. it was it was it was weird. Yeah, that's right. That's you know, right. and he had a conveyor belt of footballers. I mean, there were me myself and Vinnie Jones um one day uh when, when Gaza did his knee in. You know, yeah. so we, yeah. we could barely walk after coming out of surgery, and next thing Gaza's getting pulled in in tears, and me and Vinnie are, are, are in tears with laughter, trying to cheer him up. We just had 
a double hernia each. It was unbelievable. It's fads. There's so many fads like that. There's so many fads. I remember going there. But honestly, now I'm struggling to remember the last time someone had a, we had one, probably one young player at Chelsea in the last five years that had a hernia repair. But obviously back then it was really, really popular. Um, And so, you know, sometimes if all you've got is a hammer, everything's a nail. You know, if you go and, you know, your hamstring injury, having surgery, it's much more commonplace now to have these injuries because of the games being faster. The demand is much more stressful on the hamstrings. That's why the injury rate's going up. But we may not be any better at managing, but so many more having surgery than they've ever had before because the stress on that tissue is so much higher because of what they're expected to do. John, I just want to talk to you about your time at, at Chelsea. Yes, obviously. You, you left Reading for Chelsea. Oh, sorry, Dylan, did you want to come back in? No, I mean, you know, on, on, look, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question now. Obviously, it was in our era where we, you were a physio and I was a player. You know, I had two Gilmore groin operations where he stitched them and then I had three mesh um, uh, injuries. And remember earlier I said to you, I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't eat. For a year, I didn't play football for a year. I was in that much pain. And then somebody sent me to... Uh, Bingley, or no, Batley, to a doctor called Dr. Gilders. No, it's doc, Dr. Shilders. Ernest Shilders. And he injected me, and he injected me right down my pubic bone, cured. Cured. Yeah. yeah. Touch wood, I'm, I'm one groin, and that's 2002, and I've never had a problem with my groin. And he injected some stuff into my pubic bone. I was cured. Yeah. I was cured. I think what we're hoping what they're doing now is we're we're better at coming to a diagnosis of what the problem was. You know, your pain was coming from like the two where the two bones join, the osteite, the pubic symphysis between the two. Yeah. You dropped a needle in there. And that that is sometimes dropping a bit of steroid with a bit of painkiller is a good diagnostic procedure sometimes. Some doctors do that. Um, you know, and you know, from what I, what you said earlier is that that thing where you were pushing your adductors and they you pushed mm-hmm. it and then both sat. You know, this might have been this was I think after you had your both your groins repaired. Yeah, yeah. So if anything, he's tightened up. It was yeah, it, it, it was unbelievable. But he's tightened everything in your abdomen by tightening the abdominals, and the poor adductors are clinging on for dear life, and. uh what Ernest Shielders, one of yeah. Ernest Shielders' techniques now is when he does a repair, sometimes he cuts the adductor to release it so that you've got freedom in the- That's what they, they did, two of them. That's yeah. what they did. That's what, what that's what the guy, um Dr. Graham Holloway did. He did yeah. it twice. Right. He, he he sliced it in two, so he made it like a V shape. Yeah. You know, so he took the pressure off. Yeah. And then I I always remember um I went on a stag night down the Northfoot Broads with one of my best friends. And we was in a nightclub. I'd just been out of the hospital about four weeks from my first, my first groin uh, release, as he called it. And, you know, obviously they're all drunk and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make sure that I don't do anything. He picked, the guy picked me up and spun me around and I caught my leg on somebody and my leg just went <laughs> that way and my rest of the body. But I phoned the doctor. He says, that's the best thing that could have happened to you because yeah, you got right. rid of all the scar tissue. Yeah. And, and he, and he were you know, at the time I thought no this is this is the worst thing could have happened to me yeah but like I say it goes to that trust with the person that that you trust with your physio you trust your physio I trust Graham Holloway like nobody's business because he saved my career yeah. not once not twice three times 
yeah. You know, Dr. Yeah. Baxter here. I can phone Dr. Baxter and I've got a groin, a, a mild groin strain or a hamstring. I'll go see him and he'll say, no, no, this is what you do. And I'll do it. You know? And then there's other people that, you know, John Heseldon, God rest his soul, was a great physio, great lad in the dressing room. He was brilliant. But, you know, did we have a relationship with him? No. Because she used to go and say, oh, my calf's tight. Ah, get out, you big woofter. Get out on the field and run it off. You know, it was it was old school. It was old school. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And we, I, we had a similar situation at Reading. When my first season I went there, we had a, we had a player that, was just had a Gilmore's groin and I was in the gym with him and we were doing a drill and he said, fuck, he just went, pop. He went, God, something's just popped in my groin. And then it, I, I'm thinking, oh, bloody hell, what we done here? And he literally did the same thing as you did. He just tenotomized, he just released his adductor. He goes, you know what? I feel fantastic. And he tri- he played a week yeah. later, you know, yeah. and he, he in that process, what happened to him was his body's way of finding a way of releasing some scarring. So... <laughs> You know, it was it was like you know his body was finding its own way to get fit, and it worked. It was amazing. So John, I'm, situation. John, I'm, I'm going to uh, bring Johnny back in in a, in a set, but I just wanted to ask you about your your time at Chelsea. Obviously, you left Reading for Chelsea. Um, you know, successful time in terms of trophies and all of the rest of it. But you've been quite open about you know how that ended for you at Chelsea. What you thought of the treatment of. There was that situation with the physio Eva there. Tell us a little bit about your time at Chelsea, you know, when the club was successful and then your thoughts about the treatment of yourself and Eva and some of those other people. Um, well, you know, I, there was a there was a time when we just got promoted to, to for, with Reading to the Premier League and and Chelsea were keen to to um, for me to join them then. And that's when Jose was manager the first time at Chelsea. And for, for, to be honest, I was I felt some loyalty to Reading. I felt that I, you know, I worked hard with the squad and the team and the people that are around me. That I just, in the end, I felt I just told them I'm not really ready for this. I, I want to see Reading in the Premier League and something that I've worked hard with to see that through. So I'd put it off for a few years. And in, and and Bryce still says to me that he only waited for me to become manager, and then you thought, oh, sort this, I'm going off to somewhere else. Um, and uh, and so the, the opportunity came along a few years later, and I, I thought it was probably an opportunity that was probably an opportunity that was too good to turn down. So you know, the club was in a much better place; it was in a much better, stronger position from the department point of view, and it was ready for me to move on to something different. Um, and uh, and to say yeah, I, I had a fantastic time. At, uh, my I have fond memories, different memories, and very fond memories of my time at Chelsea. Um, you know the Eva scenario situation of of uh, of us you know, being hung out to dry a little bit with with Jose, and really it was like a bit of a very clever deflection tactic from us drawing against Swansea first game of the season or one of the early games, but, but it worked perfectly because no one was worried about the result. Um, it was all everything else. Um, and it was one of those things where, you know, uh, I just got on with my job. You know, we, I think I, I've said a few times since is that we had um, uh, City very quickly after that. And me and Jose were fine afterwards. It was, I was there to do a job. Yeah, you know, it was a difficult situation, but, you know, the referee's calling us on three or four times. And there comes a point where I'm thinking, we can't just sit here. We've got to, we've got to go. The referee's calling us. Um, and even though we're not not stupid and not uh, realise the situation that they've got ten men, and if he comes off, it's going to be down to nine. But 
you know, you know, made that clear to Jose the following day. Eva, you know, the, the, her situation went in a different tangent, really. Um, and um, and then she ended up subsequently leaving the club and, and it was all taken to the courts and settled outside. Um, but, um, and then more recently, obviously there was big changes going on with, with the, you know, the effect of the war, the Ukraine war on on the likes of the ownership of the club at Chelsea and the, the knock-on effect of that, then us, then the club being bought out and then the repercussions of that. I think we all, we're, we're not naive. We all expected change. We all expected things to, to be churned up. I think we just, maybe some of us were surprised how much it affected us personally. And they changed a lot of some of the hierarchy from the medical team early on into the season once Thomas had left. Um, and you know, I, yeah, it was. I agree, it was a surprise to me because I thought um, I still had something to offer and something to, to help the process of change. But the club obviously didn't feel that was that was what was um, required from me. So, um, as someone said to me, you know, no job lasts forever. So, you know, I was there thirteen years, which must admit I was surprised I lasted that long. If I look at my first day at the role. Yeah, Johnny, I'll bring you back in now. We've got time for one or two more questions, so go on. Yeah, John, I'd say like, you know, players feel the pressure from moving to a club, to a bigger club. What was that like for you as a physio? Do you do you feel that pressure, that the expectation of, you know, demands and the the, the bigger name players, the, the, the spotlight? <clears throat> I, I think I think going to a club like Chelsea, to be honest, I felt less pressure, a lot less pressure than I did okay. at because because the buck didn't really sit with me so much. Yes, I was part of I was part of part of a much bigger team. Um, instead of being sort of the the lead clinician at, at Reading, I was then I had a medical director above me, um, and I was part of also some colleagues within that team. Um, that were my peers and colleagues. So we were much, the responsibility was spread yeah. and it wasn't so much my responsibility. When I first went to Chelsea, it was, my role was really very much performance-based. I was travelling with the squad. I was managing the, the day-to-day um, sort of fit players. And it was only over a period of time I started to get more involved with injured players. And then, then to be honest, my role changed over the 13 years. My role changed massively um, from from doing games to doing more rehab to doing more overseeing managerial roles to linking with the academy and maybe with the women's team. And and in a way, that's what kept it really exciting because I was I was doing so many different things sometimes yeah. from season to season. And that's what was what was the exciting thing really. And now your next change, you you you've come come home to 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 Reading. Is that right? Your new role that you're doing? Well, I'm only doing a little bit, really. I've, um, I, you know, I left, I left, um, uh, left Chelsea, uh, you know, a few months ago, and it was more of a case of um, going back to you to the guys that used to be at, at Reading, Luke and Dan and Tristan, um, and the staff at Go Perform. I've always seen the the the, the system they've had at Go Perform um, develop, and it's a fantastic model. It's a model really that professional clubs have. And it's really delivering that to to the Joe public, really, yeah. and to um, people that are serious about their their sport and activity. And so it was it was really they've been great for my 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 mental health and physical professional health yeah. in terms of um, allowing me to keep my skills um, stimulated and 
and it's been a challenge, you know, when you've been used to having a player for five, six hours a day or three or four players to someone comes in, you know, tomorrow I've got, I've got, I think I've got four or five new patients and I've only got an hour uh, to <laughs> get a conversation, find a diagnosis and then giving them some advice on how to manage that process is a com- massive different out of my comfort zone process. And it's been really challenging, but a really good challenge and a really exciting one. Oh, um, but uh, so, it, you know, I'm not, I do it. I'm only doing two little afternoon, like two half sessions um but it's it's been a way of really keeping stimulated and and um it's maybe not what i'm maybe going to do on the long run maybe i don't know so. john i just want to finish off um can you put into summary you've said that it was such a special time in in your life not just your career at reading but can you can you summarize that in one one sentence what what you know your memories of, of that time at reading and and what that meant to you I think having a club that is really community based with people that just care about the club, care about the people around it, you know, the fans engaging. I've seen I've seen the Madstad. Uh, I'll always call it the Madstad. I'm not calling it SLE. It's, Thank it's, you. That's what I said today when I was when we was talking to two. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think if there should ever be a legacy, that should be more than enough. Um, but you know, I've seen that place rocking. And I look at, you know, the Derby thrashing and all, you know, that 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 stadium has been fantastic and it's it's a combination of everything that gels it together. It's, it's people and the best thing, whether it's fans, whether it's people upstairs, whether it's the people and the players that's, that work there and, and having that centenary game last year was so magical. And even there was an essence to that even of, of the you know, throwback to what could have been um, is, is so special. And I think we should all look back on it so fondly. Yeah. Well, John, listen, thanks ever so much for joining us. It's been fascinating to talk to you and, and uh, an hour has gone past really, really quickly. So uh, I think that's a good good sign when that happens. But look, um, just want to say uh, thank you ever so much to John. Um, Dylan, good luck for tonight. And our next, our next episode should be with Noel Hunt. And that's either going to be on Thursday evening or Friday evening. So look out for that. Uh, our next episode, All Being Well, is going to be with uh, Noel Hunt. And then, of course, Blackburn away tomorrow. So let's hope we end that losing streak. And I'll finish off by saying, come on, you ours. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.